Very well, thanks, Salvatore. Thanks for having me on. Um, it's used in a lot of different ways. Uh, digital authoritarianism is also referred to as tech-enabled authoritarianism. And what it essentially is, is the modes of authoritarian government that are enabled by technology. So when we talk about tech-enabled authoritarianism or digital authoritarianism, we're talking about the tools that um, authoritarian governments, or in fact, any governments use to, um, uh, to, to help them enact uh, authoritarian practices. So some of the things that we're most familiar with uh, is online censorship, um, surveillance using mass surveillance technology. Um, so those are kind of the two most common ones. But as we have seen kind of with the advent of digital authoritarianism and unfortunately it's spread uh, led by countries like China, China has been using digital authoritarianism uh, for other, using other tools. So um, social credit systems that are uh, advanced and used via online databases and other technologies uh, for surveillance and social control. Certainly China is the lead uh, digital authoritarian state or tech-enabled um, tech authoritarian state, but there are others. Uh, Russia, for example, is a country that's often pointed to as um, kind of the leaders in the digital authoritarian movement and models. Uh, but one of the kind of disturbing things about this is that led by China, but also other countries, they're trying to uh, put forward their kind of standards and norms around the use of technology within international institutions and the international spaces. So it would be one thing um, if digital authoritarianism was, was solely enacted, say, within China, we could say, well, it's a domestic governance issue for the Chinese people or within Russia or other countries. But what we're starting to see is a push in international arenas around internet standards, for example, technology standards, norms around the use of technology and surveillance that they're trying to put forward. So China, for example, has been doing this through, um, it's the Belt and Road Initiative where it's exporting some of its technologies, not only the technologies and the platforms, but how they're used and the norms for around their use. So for example, one of the things is smart cities programs, which they're exporting to a number of countries. In fact, even here in Australia, where they're exporting their technology and technology platforms, but also giving training on its use, normalizing its use for surveillance. Sometimes, you know, these type of technologies can be effective, efficient, but at the same time, they're kind of normalizing this pervasive mass surveillance 
Um, and at one point we have to ask ourselves, at one point does convenience uh, start to diminish and the risks from mass surveillance start to increase? at that aspect for this paper that I wrote on how COVID has transformed digital authoritarianism in China and its export of digital tech authoritarian norms. And you're absolutely right. This um, issue of China trying to promote its norms around the use of technologies and the internet um, is pervasive uh, within such United Nations institutions and otherwise. And so uh, part of that is the concept of internet sovereignty, which is the idea that the internet can have borders, which kind of goes against the original espousing philosophy of the creation of the internet, where we thought that it could be a free common through the free flow of information. Uh, what countries like China are doing is promoting a concept of um, internet sovereignty, where they essentially put borders around their country's use of the internet, which means which uh, internet and websites are blocked and unblocked, conditions around its use, norms around the surveillance and regulations around the surveillance of individual users and ideas that states um, are able to and should be able to censor the uh, access of certain information and the output of individuals on the internet. Yep, similar term. Well, it's it's used the, the pandemic almost as a proof of con concept. So none of these things are actually new. You have scholars and researchers who, you know, are far more expert in China than me who have actually pointed out that you know these type of tools and systems have been in use in China for quite some time, and they're and they're well known. I'm not the first person to write about this, but what I did uh, want to point out to through the paper is that COVID pandemic actually acted as a proof of concept. They had these things in place. They had a crisis that they were able to test and use and show that it worked. So um, aside from an early glitch where there was um, in the early days of the COVID outbreak where people started putting out information out there on what was going on and criticizing the CCP for its handling of this and the censorship of um, particular medical professionals and tr trying to get the word out about COVID. Um, what the CCP was actually able to do through its regulatory bodies was suppress that information further. So online censorship, and there have been studies done um, on how much that that has been suppressed and, and which websites and uh, through which social media channels. Um, They've also used uh, the COVID pandemic for an interesting use of its social credit system. So some of your listeners might be familiar with China's social credit systems where people are awarded you know, a, a points or score for a number of things in terms, not only their financial score, like a credit score, which we're, we're most familiar with in the West, but in terms of their 
social action. And these social credit um, systems are used as a means of social control. So for example, if you donate blood, uh, you get a positive point on your social credit score. If you, yeah, or if you, um, you know, contribute to the COVID effort, you know, you get points on your social credit score. At the same time, if you, um, you know, if you're traveling, for example, when you're not supposed to be traveling, you get demerits uh, from that social credit score. And so they've used the COVID pandemic and that social credit system to um, influence, I would say more than influence, would actually an active system of control of people's behavior. Um, some people have attempted to do so, but the, actually the use of VPNs is not allowed in China. And so if you're kind of caught using a VPN, that's something that can get you into trouble, or at least, you know, you'll be put, uh, you know, under a bit more scrutiny. scrutiny. Um, and, you know, the, the mechanisms and the, the resources that the CCP has within certain provinces, um, even though it's an extremely large country, one of the things that we've seen with the advent of technology is that technology has actually made it much, much easier uh, for um, countries and governments like the CCP to, to sur survey you, to know what's going on. And they've coupled that through traditional you know, uh, models of kind of network surveillance at the neighborhood level. So they've actually been able to couple their tra traditional grid model of surveillance that they um, have had since the early days of after the Maoist insurgency and couple that with technology, which actually makes it much, much easier for the CCP to know what you're doing, know what you're doing online um, and put you under uh, a bit of scrutiny if you're not behaving according to um, certain norms and regulations, which then makes it, makes you self-censor because you don't want to be under the scrutiny of government authorities. And so you start to inhibit your own behavior um, in order to avoid that, which in effect serves the same purpose, whether it's coercive or it comes um, innately and preventatively from the individual. So artificial intelligence is actually, uh, you know, one of the major issues of the future, not only in terms of you know, this exploration of digital authoritarianism, but globally in democracies anywhere. How do we want to harness these algorithms and this technology? How, how do we want to use it? And in China, they have put a massive push in developing its technology industry, its artificial intelligence industry. And one of the ways it's been doing so is uh, again through, you know, applying it to mass surveillance, but also predictive technologies. And Issues around tech, predictive technologies are very nascent. There's a lot of ethical concerns, democratic concerns, you know, concerns around privacy and liberty um, that I don't think as an international community we have yet grappled with. And what you're starting to see is two very different visions about what we should be doing and regulating and accepting as norms around artificial intelligence related to human use and government use. Um, and so you're starting to see two very alternative visions 
one arising and being led from the CCP and authoritarian governments like it, and others through you know, democratic governments. In democracies, we actually have our own issues with AI and surveillance. It might not necessarily be via the state, but you know, there's um, Shoshana Zavuf in her um, uh, book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, shows how it's also an issue that we need to grapple with in democracies as well. to worry quite a lot on this and not just worry, but actively um, consider what can be done to kind of counteract that spread because this is an active part of the CCP's foreign policy um, and they're actively exporting their technologies and their norms around the use of technology um, through what scholars in authoritarianism have called the use of sharp power. We're used to understanding what hard power is and soft power is. Sharp power is something in between. It's not necessarily like, a, you know, that military defensive power that we were known, that we understand hard power to be, but that in between of kind of using um, surveillance technology, um, uh, censorship, disinformation to promote their own interests. So I think this is actually a major, major foreign policy issue, ones that democracies really need to, to grapple with by first understanding how we want technology to be used within our own democratic liberal societies, but also making the point of actively calling it out internationally as well and making it part of our foreign policy agenda um, if we don't want these technologies to be used in coercive and controlling ways. Digital authoritarianism, China and COVID. Yeah. Look slightly that you know what's happening with um, the regulation of you know Google for example in Australia where the government is um, attempting to make to regulate that Google Pay new services for um, you know the the use of their uh, content on their sites. Um, that's a slightly out of my lane. You know I don't focus so much on those regulatory issues, but I think it does speak to a broader need to have conversations around the power of these technology companies and big tech in a democracy 
how we need to regulate them more because we've kind of gone through a, a decade, perhaps a decade and a half of more of really a unregulated space where many of these big tech companies have been able to monopolize um, the industry. And so we need to have some further deeper conversations about the relationship between government regulation and technology and democracy, certainly, certainly. And the ones in the news that you refer to now is just one part of that conversation. Well, I actually think they're two very different issues. You know, when we're talking about big tech companies out of Silicon Valley, for example, in their place in Australia and how they're regulated in Australia, um, within a liberal democratic system, for the most part, I think those issues are quite different to um, uh, an authoritarian government like China using technology um, and, uh, you know, for its own kind of coercive and social control purposes. You're very correct to point out that, you know, it's not like government is controlling these companies. They don't have, government doesn't have the same access to data, for example, that the, the Chinese government does with its um, indigenous technology platforms. So, you know, the big tech companies in China, like, you know, Ant Financial and, um, you know, the big social networking platforms that have, have become much more than social networking platforms like WeChat, for example, things like that. You know, the CCP essentially can have access to that data if it wants it. And it uses that data to form, inform its social credit systems. We don't have that same dynamic happening within de liberal democratic companies, uh, countries, excuse me. But what we do have is a different issues around technology and how they have been eroding the democratic discourse. What we're really seeing in democracy is in the internet, instead of expanding our knowledge and expanding our civic engagement, which it does help in certain instances, we've seen a plethora of disinformation, of polarization, of an epistemological crisis around knowledge. Um, it has shattered our sense of collective reality, which is essential for a democracy. And so I think when you're talking about technology and democracies, very, very different issues to what is pointed out in terms of digital authoritarianism, but nevertheless, both very critical. Thank you. 
Well, um, I guess it relates to kind of my earlier point about how technology is impacting um, democracies around issue of polarization and extremism. So part of the work that the Lowy Institute is doing that um, I'm concentrating on now is through the global network on extremism and technology, which is understanding how technology and technological platforms like social media um, platforms, but not only that, have impacted extremism and polarization, which I think are critical issues for, um, for democracies around the world. So there's some really interesting um, you know, writing coming out of this GNET effort that you can find on the Lowy Institute interpreter. Um, if people are interested in this issue, I'd also urge them to go to the GNET website. It's gnet-research.org. Um, and it's to the, uh, you know, it's interesting because that research effort is actually part of something called the Global Internet Counterterrorism Forum, which is a tech industry initiative. It's actually an initiative started by large technology companies after Christchurch who realized the magnitude of the issues um, around technology and extremism. So there's some really interesting work that needs, that's being done. It's incomplete work. Um, it's monumental work, but, but that's kind of what's uh, keeping me occupied at the moment. Thanks, Alajari. You're welcome. Enjoy the discussion.